Okay. We have been journeying through our liturgy together, and um, I want to pray, and then I want us to get started. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you've been doing in our midst this morning as you've been ministering to us the name and person and work of Christ. And uh, we pray that you would continue that work. And we pray that you do that work right now as we look at our liturgy together for Holy Communion. Amen. So we've been journeying through the prayer book. And the first thing I want to say before I get started is since we're at a juncture where we're going to start talking about uh, the liturgy for Holy Communion, last three weeks together, collective sigh of sadness, right? You all are really sad. Um, actually, gosh, I have to go back a little bit. Um, first off, I put up on my website a handy-dandy place where everything is. All these handouts that I've given you, all my slide presentations have been made into PDFs and organized really well. All the audio is in one place for this class of everything thus far. ZachHicks.com, which others have told me looks like ZaChicks.com. Uh, it's unfortunate, but it's just the case, all right? ZaChicks.com slash prayer book class. ZaChicks.com slash prayer book class, okay? Um, you can go there and get the, the audio. Of course, you can get the audio on Advent's website, but I thought just in, in the expediency uh, for, for my sake, I threw it up all uh, onto my site so you can grab it there. And as we get future weeks of this stuff where it's the annotated leaflet, that'll continue to go up there. So the full leaflet of morning prayer is up there. And don't forget to get yours after. I've got a hard copy for you back there. Um, but that stuff hopefully will just help you and, and be a resource for you as we go through it. Today, oh my goodness, we have so much to go through. But I want to remind us of what we're doing. These goals. Hi, standing room. Sorry. Uh, I don't know what to do for you. Uh, maybe over there, there's some seats on the ledge. That's about it. Um, our goals for this class are to better connect our head and our heart in worship. I hope that that started to happen a little bit as we've been doing this together. And the second goal is to tune our ears to hear the gospel. If, if the gospel really is, as Paul says, the power of God unto salvation, this is what the goal is is to tune your ears to hear the gospel and re-articulate it another way. What we're trying to accomplish and what we believe that the prayer book is attempting to do, what the reformers attempt to do, what we are wanting us to experience in the midst of our liturgy is this. The unleashing of the word of God to convert the heart through the power of the gospel. There's really nothing short of death and resurrection that's supposed to occur again and again as your old Adam, your old Eve, is confronted again by the law of God and killed and pinned to the ground. And then Jesus comes forth mighty to save. And the new Adam, Christ, rises up by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. That's the experience of what we're trying to accomplish on Sunday mornings. And uh, so again, yep, I wanted to remind you of those resources. All right. So now we're starting our journey toward Holy Communion. And just like we did for morning prayer, here's a list of all the things we do. Is that not overwhelming? Is that not overwhelming? I mean, look at all, all these things that are involved. How do you make sense of this? Well, um, a lot like the way morning prayer works, uh, the Holy Communion service is structured with a, is a very ancient two-part structure. The first part has been most often called this, and I'll explain why we have a little bit of a rub with this language here at the Advent. But the first part is most often been called the liturgy of the word. Because in this first half, you have a ministry of the scriptures. The word of God coming through the scriptures, coming at you. 
coming at you in the reading of the scriptures and in the preaching of the scriptures. And this historically has been called the liturgy of the word. In the second half, beginning with the great thanksgiving, at that juncture, right after kind of the welcome and sermon and offertory, those kinds of things. It's important, by the way, that the offertory be understood as being here rather than as the beginning of the communion liturgy. Very important to Cranmer. I'll tell you why in a few weeks or maybe at the end of today if we have time. Uh, Part two, the liturgy of the upper room. So the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the upper room. This is very ancient and very historic. Uh, This structure may be one of the earliest structures of gathered, organized, codified Christian worship that we have. Because when we look into some of the earliest manuscripts of the way Christians did worship, they seem to have this two-part structure. And this this two-part structure was partially theological, partially practical. Here's the reason it was practical. Early Christians, when they gathered, would open up the whole service to believers and non-believers alike for the liturgy of the word, for the ministry of the word. But when it came time to receive communion, they dismissed the non-believers, the non-Christians, the people who had not professed faith in Christ. And so it was only Christians experiencing the liturgy of uh, the upper room. And so that's part of the reason for this two-part structure historically is that's the way they did it. But as we'll see, um, there's some theological import to it as well. One of the sticking points that the reformers would have with this language today, especially Luther, especially maybe Cranmer, in the way that this is talked about, is that it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that the word is only ministered in scripture reading and preaching. Because the word, according to John 1, is Jesus. The word is Jesus Christ. And chiefly and most clearly, we hear Jesus and receive Jesus through the preached word, as Romans 10 tells us. But we also hear the word through the sacraments. That's a very reformational idea that the word of God chiefly comes to us in preaching, but also in in the scripture reading and in the sacraments. And so if the reformers were to kind of rephrase the way we might talk about this, we might say that the liturgy of the word is best understood as the ministry of the word through scripture. And we might call the liturgy of the upper room the ministry of the word through sacrament. Okay? And I think it's more than just semantics. It really is an understanding of the gospel at work being preached primarily in the preaching, but also in the scripture reading and in the sacraments. That that word, that power of God that does a work that's unleashed to save us is preaching at all those places. And you hear it in some of the language of the pastors and the ministers as we give you uh, and uh, offer to you the bread and the wine. I want to just briefly talk about the difference between Holy Communion and morning prayer. One stark difference is uh, Holy Communion is by and large less of a prayer service. It's less of a prayer service because in Holy Communion, there's no big chunk of time for extended series of prayers. You remember in morning prayer that we had we have this, this movement getting from the broad prayers that we pray to the more intimate prayers that we pray. That was a big move to, toward the heart of God. Uh, for various reasons, n- not all those prayers are there. We don't have the col- we have the collect of the day, for instance, in uh, Holy Communion, but you don't hear the other collects. You have uh, you only have the prayers of the people and prayers of intercessions, but you don't have the suffrages. You know uh, that back and forth between the congregation. 
And the Lord's Prayer isn't part of that aspect of the prayer. It's brought into the communion liturgy as well. So that that's one big difference between morning prayer and holy communion is that morning prayer, given its name, is dedicated to giving the people of God an opportunity for a lengthier prayer session. Holy communion is giving you some other things, of course, that morning prayer is not. But that's one difference that I'd like to point out. And uh, I'd like to just sort of talk through, as we go through... We're going to walk through the liturgy of the word today. I don't know that we're going to get all the way to the end. But one thing I'll say structurally, if you were to look at your prayer book and then look at the way Advent does the communion liturgy, one thing that's just different, uh, and it's for for basically a practical reason, is in the prayer book, the sermon comes right here after the gospel reading. That's where the prayer book has it. It's sort of the pinnacle of the ministry of the reading of the scriptures is the preaching of the scriptures. And then we have the Nicene Creed. But we've moved it over here. Uh, we've moved the sermon, you know, after a considerable, considerably more uh, longer length of time where we've got a lot of other liturgical actions going on. Several things. It's, first of all, to parallel it a little bit more with morning prayer so that some of the ways that we work with our kids in dismissal, you know, if kids are dismissed really early in the service, the children's programming has a lot more time to deal with the kids or to work with the kids. And that's okay, but given how much we're constantly alternating these things, it's a bit helter-skelter. And so that's definitely one of the practical reasons, but maybe one of the more important reasons, because pragmatics shouldn't drive anything. They should follow suit with your theology and your philosophy, is that we want our kids to be here longer in the worship service to, especially for this moment of confession, Declaration of forgiveness and the comfortable words. We want our children to be diving into what I said in the first few weeks of class, the ruts of righteousness. This repetition of confessing your sin and saying, I'm sorry, God. And then hearing God say to us through broken mouthpieces like me, you're forgiven. And then hearing God tell us, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. There's nothing more important in a worship service for our children to hear again and again and again than Jesus loves you and he is for you. And so that's one of the reasons that we, we move the sermon um, to this, this moment right here and actually helps a little bit make theological sense of the offertory as well. I want to read to you what I have here on the front page, the, the last two paragraphs. Um, in talking about this structure of, of the, the ministry of, of the word through scripture and the ministry of the word through sacraments, the, the word in the upper room. The Book of Common Prayer has preserved this layout, this this historic Christian layout of a two-part structure, in keeping with the ancient structure of the Christian liturgy. Listen to this. In the 16th century, many reformers across Europe were concerned about how convoluted this ancient service had become throughout the medieval era. They wanted to return to worship's simplicity. They went back to earlier sources, studying the liturgical outlook of the church fathers. I don't know if you realize this, but um, some of our the best scholarship of the patristics or the early church in the 16th century were done by Protestants, the Protestant reformers, particularly Calvin, to a lesser degree Luther, definitely Cranmer. These were people that were encouraged based on the humanistic uh, kind of impulse of the time to go back to the sources. And they discovered and rediscovered the simplicity of Christian worship that was Absent. So they went back to early sources, studying the liturgical outlook of the church fathers. However, we have to understand this because this is something that Advent disagrees with the people who have revised our 79 prayer book about with regards to the, this outlook. However, this 
desire to go back to early sources wasn't their only aim in editing medieval Roman worship. They were convinced that the service needed to be purged of its heavy emphasis on works righteousness. This is key. Understanding this is key to understanding why Advent thinks the way it thinks and does things the way it does. Especially for Cranmer, therefore, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide, became a, if not the, criterion for worship reform. Not everybody believes this about Cranmer. So I'm giving you a perspective. I think it's the right one. (laughs) But I'm giving you a perspective. We see it in everything from the positioning of the offertory to the placement and wording of the prayers surrounding communion. For Cranmer and the Reformers, the structure, listen, the structure of the Holy Communion service spoke just as loudly as its content. And both needed to be brought into stringent conformity to justification by faith alone. Why it wasn't just a a doctrinal issue and nitpicking. The gospel was on the line. The clarity of the gospel is on the line. So it's the opinion of the leaders at Advent that much of this Reformation vision for worship in the communion service has at best been ignored and at worst directly opposed by future prayer book revisionists. The move away from a Protestant Reformational vision began at the moment the American prayer book was ratified in 1789, but took its largest step back in 1928 in 1979, interestingly, I didn't know, but Andrew talked about that very briefly in his sermon today. <laughs> the Advent's liturgical changes to our communion service have been a reversion to earlier forms of the communion liturgy, specifically the 1662 revision of the English prayer book, precisely to recover a more Protestant reformational structure and wording of the liturgy, not just because we like old things. And we're traditional. It's not for that reason. It's theologically driven. That's the reason. And hopefully we'll unpack that as we go through the liturgy a little bit. So, yeah. So, based on that, are we, are we looking at moving the prayer of humble access? That would be nice. <laughs> you know, um, not necessarily. Okay. You know, there are certain hills that we're wanting to die on to crystallize the clarity of the gospel. And so we're processing those things. Because we know that with with each shift comes a cost. Um, so, yeah. Okay. When we went through morning prayer, we discussed the meaning of the voluntary and the symbolism of our procession, including the crosses. And I encourage you to go back to that lecture, which is either week three or four, uh, where we talked about some of those things. When the service for communion begins, we begin with this acclamation. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And people respond, and blessed be His kingdom, now and forever. This opening opening acclamation connects us to the Eastern Church. I actually think this is a really helpful and cool move of the 1979 revisers to give us this connection to the way the Eastern Church, which has largely been disconnected from the Western worship until the 20th century, and some of these revisers were, were... into thinking about ecumenism or, or connecting the church across denominational lines. Um, this is you know, brought to us from the Eastern Church and the way they begin their communion liturgy. And, and the phrase, uh, blessed be God, that's where that comes from. It's kind of reminiscent of ancient Hebrew worship as well. So there's something very ancient about beginning worship by blessing the name of God. 
and something actually particularly Christian <laughs> about naming the persons of the Trinity at the front end of a worship service. Who is this God that we bless? He is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if I were to encourage you as worshipers to remember two things at this moment in the worship service, it would be this. With the first phrase of the efficient, the person leading this, um, remember that as we gather for worship, we're joining hands with the universal church. You know, as we say, this isn't just an Episcopalian table. This isn't just, you know, a denominational table. It's a table for all those who have been baptized into the name of the Trinity. It's a Christian table, right? And so it's remembering that we're joining hands with a universal church as we engage in this practice and this place where God is really present with his people. With the second phrase, we remember, remember this, you know, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful moment, given that those were the, the, the names and the persons spoken over of you at your own baptism. Remember that you enter into worship through the waters of baptism. This was something cool that John Knox did that isn't required, but John Knox... In, in the churches uh, during the Reformation, he actually grabbed the baptismal font and put it at the entryway to the church so that every single believer had to pass by and look at it and remember, I have entered the church. I have entered into relationship with God through the waters of baptism and through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And being reminded of that, that we come through the flood, the, the death and resurrection, is a marvelous picture. And you know, that's what I would encourage you to, to cling to. Now, oh, this is awesome. I love the Collect for Purity. This had earlier forms, but this is definitely Cranmer's reworking. The earlier forms, believe it or not, weren't spoken over the congregation at all. Medieval worship was a very sort of quiet and private experience. And at this moment, this was for the priest to mumble by himself inaudible to the congregation to sort of purify themselves as the mediator between God and humanity. <laughs> and instead, Cranmer and the Reformation gave this collect for purity to the priesthood of all believers to, to hear and to pray in our hearts together. And so we hear this phrase, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. This prayer is such a perfect setup to everything that worship is and does. It gives you the full philosophy of worship. We talked about how worship is, is ultimately unleashing the word of God to do that work of converting your heart. This is the summary of that. You know, I think sometimes we have a rosy picture of our hearts being open. Oh my God, my heart's open to you today. Cranmer had a much more bloody picture in mind, especially if you think about the passage of scripture that this is hearkening to in Hebrews 4, where it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing joints and marrow, cutting up bones. What is that about? That's sacrificial language. When we enter into worship, nothing short is going to happen, but God is going to cut you up <laughs> and open you up. Worship is nothing, nothing more and nothing less than open heart surgery. In fact, it's heart replacement, okay? It's replacing your stony, cold, dead heart with the heart of the Spirit of the living God, Jesus Christ, the heart of flesh, all right? 
And so when we say my heart's open, hear that saw cutting open your sternum. All right? Hear that saw starting to expose you for the fraud and the sinner that you really are. You thought you could do a good job covering over yourself and hiding this week. And you thought maybe that all your beautiful uh, dress and makeup could sort of cover over the fact that you're a desperate person in need of the grace of God yet again today. You thought you could hide. And God's like, nope, I'm calling you out right at the front end, right? All desires are known. He knows every one of your desires, and that's much deeper than your actions. Medieval Roman worship was all about behavior modification and making sure you did the right actions. They were all about sins, particular sins that needed confessing, right? The reformer said sins actually have root in sin, in a, in a, a state of, of a damnable state before God, because these desires are bent in the wrong direction. I don't even have the power to choose the right things, right? And the proof's in the pudding, people. You know, you don't need to, you don't need to, I don't know. This is obvious to every last one of us when we're honest with ourselves. okay? All your desire, and from whom no secrets are hid, just to make sure. Think you're hiding something? No secrets, no secrets. The all-seeing eye, right? So God, this is what we need you to do in our worship service. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. To the end, there's always fruit being displayed in the liturgy. What's, what's the result of this? That we might actually perfectly love thee through Christ and worthily magnify. There's a lot of magnifying of God's name, but is it worthy? Is it worthily magnification? Worthy magnification? We want this to be the end game, the fruit of the gospel. Through Christ our Lord. It's not an inconsequential phrase. The collect for purity is our collect. And it begins communion by saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be cut open. And there's some wonderful uh, passages of scripture to to check out. Matthew 6, I, I have them in there. Uh, Psalm 139, John 16, 8. Read this prayer sometime and then go through those passages of scripture and see all the illusion that's being hearkened to. And then we move... Oh, yeah. Oh, I just wanted to point out that even this moment is Trinitarian. Even this prayer. Almighty God, Father, all hearts are open. And it's done by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Lots of Trinitarian stuff coming at us at the front end. Just to remember, who is this God that, that we serve? We then move into the summary of the law. This is a unique move of the Reformers and Cranmer. Before the Reformation... They didn't do this kind of stuff. They didn't recite the Ten Commandments. They didn't recite the summary of the law. But the Reformers had an outlook that it is the law of God that is the first voice of a two-voiced way that God speaks to his people. The Reformers articulated it as law and gospel. Paul articulates it in places like Romans 3, 2 Corinthians 3. Those kinds of places. The distinction between law and gospel. It's very important. And for Cranmer, on the front end, it was important that if your heart's going to get filleted open today, it's going to be by the knife of God's law that says these words to you. And we should really hear them not as, you know, well, we'll get to that. Hear what the Lord Jesus Christ saith. You shall love the Lord your God and make sure you hear this word with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. There's an implied question here in that moment. What is the implied question? 
How well have you done at that this week, O Christian? How well are you doing with that? Is that going well for you? Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind this week? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? On these two commandments, this is the summary. This is it. This is the heart of God. This kind of rule and law of love. How well did you do? And everyone's heart should go, abject failure. (laughs) Abject failure. Which is why? Which is precisely why? Immediately after the law of God is read, there's only one response. It was the same response of Isaiah when he said, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. It was the same response of Mary that we just heard in the in uh, Gabriel's Gabriel's coming to her and saying these things. She said, I'm I'm not worthy. And he says, You found favor, but there was that I'm not worthy moment. The only thing that the Christian, the non Christian, every last human being can rightly say before the law of God is Lord. Have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, we need to say it three times just to get it through our thick skull, you know? Uh, we need to say it that many times, right? So, right at the front end of worship, as I've said before, it's like our flesh is being pinned to the wall. And God is saying, you can't run and you can't hide. And if there's any salvation for you, it is going to be found not in you. <laughs> you know, the, the flesh wants to say after hearing the law, and I'm going to do it. I will do it this day for you, God. I am that kind of Christian. And God says, all? You're going to do all. Really? Oh, flesh. And the flesh is like, well, I mean, I'll do pretty good. All? Well, God, I mean, don't you just see that I'm, I'm trying really hard here? All. My law is stringent. It is unattainably high. <laughs> And so to hear the full voice of the law is to hear nothing but condemnation. Because the full voice of the law says, perfection, be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. That's the voice of the law. That's what we hear at the front end of the communion liturgy. It's not so seeker sensitive, is it? It's kind of mean to outsiders, isn't it? Well, yeah, but if there's to be any good news, the bad news has to come first or else we don't think that the gospel is really needed. We're always trying to shift and avoid the, the message of the law. And if we do that, the gospel isn't as... It's okay news, because I need maybe some of Jesus, but I don't need all of him. The cross, it may, I mean, that was kind of violent. I don't know that that needed to happen, God. I mean, I just need a little bit more power from your Holy Spirit to do a little better. By the way, that's medieval Roman Catholic theology, okay? That's why the Reformers wanted to make this clear, because they believed the gospel was on the line, Okay. All right. At our um, at our eleven o'clock service, we have this moment where we sing the Gloria. If you're turning to that next page, uh, that's a part of our prayer book. We don't do it at nine. Um, I think it's mostly for time that we don't do it. But interestingly, I'll just tell you, Cranmer had this way later in the liturgy, actually after communion. He didn't put it here. Uh, the revisers put it here because it's, it's more historic here. But I'll tell you that this is probably one of the reasons uh, that that we can say Cranmer's um, grid was more about justification by faith alone than just by recovering ancient worship practices. Because he did things like this. He moved the Gloria out of this position. But when we sing this Gloria in this position, I think it's a, a wonderful way, if we can think of it this way, when after hearing God's law, we sort of have this moment of, God, oh my goodness, you're brilliant and your law is magnificent and you are awe-inspiring. It's a moment to sort of breathe into the majesty of God and sing, all glory be to God on high and peace on earth. 
And actually, the full Gloria um, in the prayer book does both kind of law and gospel work because it's it's the tail end of the Gloria, which we often never sing, uh, that starts to sing about some of that sin and darkness and the need for Jesus again. So it returns us, all right? It returns us. Then we go to the collect of the day. We talked about collects and their meaning in morning prayer, so I don't want to repeat that. Uh, but I do want to say that this is a moment where we're sort of reminded and gathered in that God is, is taking us on a yet another prayer journey. And then we begin, similar to morning prayer, this cycle of the scriptures being read. You know, prayer puts us, the collect puts us in a certain frame where we're, we're recognizing that li- listening to scripture is not an academic exercise. It's a devotional one. So we pray at the beginning of hearing the scriptures to remind us, like, I am in dialogue with God. And just like in morning prayer, a dialogue ensues where there's a scripture reading and then we respond. Scripture reading and we respond. So there's this back and forth where the word of God is, is working on us. So I want to end actually by talking a little bit about uh, the gospel because some people have questions about why we do what we do there. So a lot of times uh, we sing these alleluias here, except during uh, Lent and Advent because they're penitential seasons. And oftentimes during penitential seasons, we're, we're trying to strip some of the alleluias because alleluia feels, I guess, uh, liturgically joyful. And during penitential seasons, we want a bit of, you know, take off some of the icing on the joy cake so that uh, we get that this is supposed to be a time of preparing our hearts, you know, preparing our hearts for longing. Um, and so we, we read this gospel with these alleluias and with a procession and with sung responses, all right? We sing these alleluias. And the gospel, you know, someone comes forward, usually a deacon with uh, two acolytes who are holding lights and someone who's holding the Bible, Right? The symbolism here, why, you know, why is the gospel reading, does this happen? The symbolism is that the gospels, this is the thinking, the gospels represent the fullest, clearest revelation of Christ in the scriptures. They are the record of Christ's incarnation and work and ministry on earth before ascending to the Father. Father, It is why the gospel is read in the chancel, closer to the people of God, closer to us, than the epistles or the Old Testament readings. It is why we sing Alleluia. It is why acolytes hold candles. Clarity and brilliance brought through the light of the Word of God. So you see, at least the symbol, the idea, is that the Gospels, by their very name, reveal Jesus most clearly. It's that part in Scripture. Now, so for those of us who are Reformational Christians, there's a bit of a tension here. This practice of emphasizing the Gospels above other portions of Scripture presents a tension. For us... The Gospels are not a canon within a canon. And what I mean by that is they're not sort of extra holy portions of Scripture, as though the Old Testament, as though the epistles and other books of the Bible weren't also uh, equally a part of the Scriptures. We firmly believe that the Scriptures in Old and New Testaments fully proclaim Christ in their entirety, the whole counsel of God. So... When I, this is what I'd encourage you, thinking about that tension a little bit for us. When Alleluia is sung, praise the Lord with all that you are for the gift of the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ. When Alleluia is sung, sung, and you see this processional, remember that Jesus came down. Jesus came near to us. And the symbol of the light drawing near is the symbol that God didn't stay way back in heaven, but came to us in Jesus Christ. 
And when we sing, Alleluia, 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 we're praising the Lord. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord that He's near us, right? That's the idea. That's the idea, right? And as you witness and hear that procession, remember that God's God's name in Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, all right? Read that uh, on gospel procession and hearing law and gospel sometimes because that's going to flesh out a little bit more of what I was talking about, about Christ, us believing that Christ is displayed for us throughout all of scripture. Um, any questions? I want to actually, we're probably going to, we went, we went well, we went far. I want to stop here. Any questions before we sing? Light of the world. Yep. Well, I mean both. Both could be used. Put L in parentheses. He is the light of, that's his name, light of the world. But it's certainly the light of the word. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a question uh, that, yes, Cranmer's liturgy didn't have a summary of the law. It had the full-blown Ten Commandments. And we, from time to time, to steal a word from our confession, do this, um, we, we, will, we will do the, the full Ten Commandments, you know? And there's a, there's a real, uh, there's a strong power in hearing those commandments and saying at the end of every commandment, Lord, have mercy on us, incline our hearts to keep thy law, you know, to keep this law. Because really the only way we're going to get through it, and you know, I, I would say that the reason ultimately that, that we don't do it all that often is because our communion liturgy, we're always running up against the clock a little bit. And so the summary of the law, uh, as a, and people talk about it this way, interestingly enough, the summary of the law is the positive articulation of God's law. God's law works this way, love. That's what it means. And the, the Ten Commandments are the negative articulation in the sense of it's telling you not to do some things. It's prohibitions, right? Thou shalt, you shall do this, but eventually it's like thou shalt not, you know? It's getting into some things that are more of the specifics and the nature. And probably the best answer is simply that we do, but it would be good for us to, on occasion. Remember and hear the Ten Commandments, especially because they're there for us as Judeo-Christians, the summary of our ethical uh, ethical makeup and our ethical body, right? Good question. Anything else? I'm sort of... I'm sorry, what? Is there a particular time in the year when the Ten Commandments are we did it a couple weeks ago. We actually we vary it pretty regularly at the five o'clock service. Um, Seven thirty also also does this more. I think it would personally be more appropriate for penitential seasons like Advent and Lent. You know, it could be something good. Yes, coffee. I'm, I'm caught in the tension between Cranmer's prayer book, his original prayer book, in the 1662. Right. 1662 had the influence of the Cromwellian Reformation. Right. In the, in the Republic era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the absence of the church's influence and the, the, the crown and yak yak and blah blah. Right. And, and Cranmer had been dead for quite some time when the 1662 book came right. out. What? How can we re- resolve what tensions seem to be between the 1549 and the 1662? Well, uh, he's asking the question of how can we resolve the tensions of between. I think. You might mean 1552 and 1662. Um, how do we resolve some of those tensions? I think one of the ways without answering the question is to investigate them and the revisions in their context. Because there were just some things going on in England that were not present theological and pastoral issues 
that had developed as a result of the Protestant Reformation rubbing up against the unique issues of England in the 17th century. Um, and therefore, you have to ask, what were those people saying about those revisions? What were the arguments, for instance, when the, the Puritans uh, at the Savoy uh, Conference convocation, what were those arguments that they were lodging? What was the, the debate between the Laudians the, you know, and, and people like that? And you just have to start to ask those, those questions. I haven't given you the answers, but I'm helping to frame what the questions are. Any other question before we sing? One more. All right, we're going to sing. So, given that we're in, we're in the Advent season, and given that uh, we're talking about the communion liturgy, I love this Advent hymn. It's actually one of my favorites. Uh, number one, it displays some of the mystery that is the encounter with God, the Word of God at the table. Uh, number two, it hearkens to some of this encounter with uh, God's glory at the front end of the service. But particularly this line in the second verse at the end. Uh, well, let me just read the whole verse because it's powerful. King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood. So the ancient word of God, Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, the guy who was there at creation, Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood. Just good writing. <laughs> he will, listen to this, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Man, when you think about the glorious transcendent word of God, creating the word, creating the world by the word of his mouth, by himself, through the power of the spirit, out of the father. You think about this one, wrapping himself in body and blood and then giving that life to us. That's what communion is, all right? So let's sing together. Would you stand with me? Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in his hand. Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. King of kings yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food rank on rank the hosts of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day. Yeah, this one. That the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. At his feet the six-winged seraph cherub 
dim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, Alleluia. Alleluia, Lord Most High.